Great to be with you guys this morning. Great to have the folks out back and uh, also those that are watching online. Thanks for joining us. Hey, um, I got a question for you. Has everybody seen Braveheart here? Everybody? Has somebody not seen Braveheart? Oh, Lord. Like, this is a classic, especially if you're a man. You need to see Braveheart. I, I was going to show this scene. There's so many epic battle scenes in Braveheart, and I was going to show um, one of the first resistance of, of the Scots and the British, but then I watched it, and I thought I'd better not do that on a Sunday morning. Some of those scenes were a little inappropriate, like maybe the men mooning the, uh, the Brits or um, a number of just very graphic, violent scenes there. Um, but, but there was one, so let me just, even if you haven't seen this, try and picture this in your mind. Um, so this battle ha- has been um, engaged. The British are now attacking the Scots. And over to the right are some of the Scots, and they're on horseback. And so William Wallace then signals for them to engage the battle. But instead of engaging, what do they do? They turn and they ride away. Well, the Brits think, we've got it. The battle is ours. The victory is ours. And then they just release all the men towards the Scots. But little did they know that the men on horseback were actually circling around to ambush them. And then they annihilated the Brits. It's a great scene. It was a great military strategy. But did you know it wasn't an original strategy? Did you know that this was a strategy that God actually implemented way back in the days of Joshua. It wasn't exactly the same. It didn't involve horses, but it did involve an ambush. And we're going to take a look at that this morning as we continue through Joshua. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 8. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, it's on page 214. And um, just to bring you up to speed, what we saw happen last week was terrible. Um, The Israelites were coming off this victory at Jericho. God had miraculously delivered the um, city and the king and all the people into their hands. And now they were up against this smaller foe. Um, It it was uh, a king of Ai and and his followers. And um, again, the army was very small. And so Joshua really failed to consult God on this one, and he just did what seemed right. He listened to his spies, and instead of sending the entire army, just sent 3,000 men, and um, not only did they get routed and humiliated, but 36 of them lost their lives, and it was all because he failed to consult God beforehand, because there was sin in their midst. This man by the name of Achan had not heeded the warning of God, and he had taken some of the spoils, some of the devoted things to God from the city of Jericho when they defeated them. And now, because of that sin, God just sort of removed his presence from them and allowed them to fight the battle in their own strength, and they were defeated. They were defeated. Well, fortunately, um, Joshua went back to God, and God revealed the sin, and then they dealt with the sin. It cost Achan and all of his family members and all their possessions their lives, but it needed to happen. That was justice. And now, where we pick up today is they're ready to re-engage in battle to take the city of Ai. So we're in um, Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. This is important because remember last week we saw that their hearts melted. Like all the Israelites, their hearts melted in fear. 
And he says, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. His, um, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So this is good news. God is ensuring victory. And they're going to be victorious just like they were over Jericho. And, and notice one more thing here. He says, this time when you win, you get to keep all the plunder. You get to keep all the plunder. The first time he said, all of that is devoted to me. All the gold and the silver, the bronze, the iron, that, that's to come to my treasury. That's to provide for those who serve me directly, who, who take care of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, all the priests. We're going to use those resources to provide for them. But this time, he says, all you soldiers, take all you want. Take all you want. And I think there's an important lesson in there for us. You know, when we trust and obey God and put him first, we can trust that he will provide for us. And oftentimes in an abundant way. If we will just put God first, put him first in our lives, we can trust that he'll provide for us. And and oftentimes he does it in abundance. Now, notice the strategy that they employ in in this battle, verses 3 through 8. It says, so Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you be on the alert. And I and all those with me will advance on the city. And when the men come out against us, as they did before, we'll flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city. For they'll say, they're running away from us as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. When you have taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it. You have my orders. Now, I think this is an ingenious plan. So Joshua consults God. And God tells him um, what's going to happen to the king. And he, he says, Really, what he's going to do is he's going to use the king's own pride and his own arrogance against him. And notice also that at this time, Joshua does not underestimate his enemy. He doesn't send 3,000 men. He sends 30,000 men, 10 times the number of soldiers into battle this time. Now, look at verse 9. It says, Then Joshua sent them off, and they went to the place of ambush and lay in wait between Bethel and Ai. I want you to remember those, those cities, Bethel and Ai. You're going to hear them a couple more times um, throughout the message. It says, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night with the people. Now, if you were here with us last week, we, we talked about how um, the city of Ai was up on a hill. So it, it was a bit of a hike. And I did a little research. And do you know that Reed Mountain, which is right outside these doors, is about the same elevation 
as where the city of Ai was. So I've got a picture of that since you can't look out there. So imagine you're at the front door of Orchard Hills, and you look out, and that's Reed Mountain. So that is about the same elevation as the city of Ai. And here's what we've got going on. So you've got a, a city up there, and you've got the king who's looking down upon the valley here. And now Joshua has made his way with um, some 30,000 soldiers, and they're camping right here in the Orchard Hills parking lot. All right? And so that's what's going on. And so the king can look down, and he sees what's going on. But there's a different plan, right? And so he takes some of the men. We're going to see like 5,000 of the men And they go around the back. They come down Old Mountain Road, you know, and they make their way up to Reed Mountain. And they are are camped right up there. And and they are ready. They're ready to ambush the men of Ai. So this is what's happening. And so the king looks down, and he sees them all there. He's thinking, we've got them. And so um, the next morning rolls around, and, and Joshua rallies the troops, and they begin to make their way up the mountain. And then the king of Ai, he rallies his troops, and down they start to come. And as they're about to um, engage with one another, Joshua and the Israelites, they turn tail and they run. They start running back down the mountain. So now, what does the king of Ai think? We've got them. This is just a replay of what happened the other day when we kicked their bottoms. And, uh, And so they are pursuing them. They are pursuing them, and they're so excited. They're thinking, we've got them. We're going to be victorious yet again. Like all the men from, from Ai, they engage in the battle. And then you got this little, little town over here, Bethel. All the men come out of there too because everybody wants to be part of the victorious team, right? And so they're all rushing down. So now everybody is, all the men at least have left the city. And then God tells Joshua, he's like, hold up the javelin. Hold up the javelin, because that's going to be a signal to the men that lay in ambush up on the hill. And when they see you holding that javelin high, they're going to take the city. And that's exactly what happened. They snuck into the city, and they took it. And then they did just what God told them to do. They set it on fire. Well, then the king of Ai and the soldiers, they look back, and they see the smoke. And it's one of those, oh, crap kind of moments. And they know, we've been fooled. We've been fooled. And at that same moment, guess what? The Israelites, instead of running around away, they turn. And they begin to pursue the soldiers of Ai. And now they're trapped because guess who comes out from the city? The guys that had just destroyed the city and set it on fire. And now they've got all the soldiers of Ai trapped. They have nowhere to go. They can't run back to the city, and they can't run down to the valley, and they get slaughtered. They get slaughtered, except for the king, and they they take the king, and they bring him to Joshua. Now, we pick up again. We're at verse 24. It says, when Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the wilderness where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. 12,000 men and women fell that day, all, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. 
But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of this city as the Lord had instructed Joshua. This rivals any of those battle scenes that you see in Braveheart or these other movies. They completely annihilate them. They destroy everything except for the plunder and the livestock, and the soldiers go in and, and they have it all. And it made me think of Achan. Remember Achan who, who just had to take what wasn't his? And if he had only been patient, if he had only waited, if he only had trusted God, he could have had all that he wanted and probably even more. Instead, he died and everything he cared about and all of his possessions with him. So sad when we fail to heed the warnings of God and we don't trust him. And that's what was taking place here. Now, um, Look at verse 28 with me. It says, So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He impaled the body of the king of Ai on a pole and left it there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take the body from the pole and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. Remember what they did with um, Achan? They killed him, um, and then they put a large pile of rocks over him, just like they did the king of Ai. And this was to be a, a memorial, a, a, a place of remembrance of what God had done. And it's a reminder to us that God is not to be messed with. God is not to be taken lightly. He is a just God. He is gracious. He, he is, is full of love. But he is just as well, and we need to remember that. And so that was a sign for them. It's interesting, too, um, just historically, so they just destroyed this city to the point where archaeologists, even today, have not been able to find the remains of the town of Ai, even to this day. I mean, they just utterly destroyed it and wiped it away. Interesting fact. Now, um, Three things struck me as important and noteworthy from this battle, and I just want to reiterate those to you. Um, first thing is, is Joshua consulted God before implementing his own battle plan. He consulted God this time before implementing his own battle plan. Um, I think this is, is crucial because God's ways and God's plans are always better than ours. Even if we don't necessarily agree with them, they're always better than ours. And we see how, how God just worked this out, and he brought them victory, much like he did in Jericho. The, the inference here is that, that no Israelites lost their lives in this battle. Just like in the battle of Jericho, none of the Israelites lost their lives. It appears that that's the case here as well. Yet, when they did it in their own strength, followed their own plans, 36 men lost their lives. Important that we consult God. And, and that's one of the benefits we have um, living in the day and the time that we do. You know, Jesus has come for us, and, and he's provided access to God like they didn't have back in, in this day and time. Joshua had that intimate relationship with God, um, but not everybody did. And so we do, 
And we can consult God any time of day or night. We can bring to him our, our big plans, and we can bring to him the things that seem rather inconsequential. And we should. We need to consult him with whatever it is that we have and follow his plans. It always turns out better. So that's the first thing that Joshua did and that I think we need to do is consult God. Um, secondly, God demonstrates that he's a God of redemption yet again. God is a God of redemption. God is a God of redemption. I want you to hear that. And, and that's really, when you read the Bible from beginning to end, you see it's just one story of redemption, of God redeeming broken people and broken lives. And, and that's the beauty of this plan. I, I love this plan because this is, it's, it's, it's this um, incredible picture of redemption. So God used this failed plan of Joshua and the Israelites, right, to bring about victory. He, he used it. He, he played into the mind and the heart of the king of Ai. He, he knew that the king was just going to think, we, we've got it. You know, victory is ours. Sort of like Joshua before where he's like, man, we, we took down Jericho. These guys will be nothing. Well, the king of Ai, his pride got the best of them. And, and he, just, he just took the bait, you know, completely. He swallowed it whole. And little did he know that there was this ambush that was already there and planned for him. God redeemed this failed plan of Joshua, and he brought victory out of it. And, you know, the Apostle Paul said something in uh, 2 Corinthians that I think um, was true for him in his day, but I also think it applies to Joshua and his situation, and most importantly, I think it applies to us in our situation, in our lives. This is from 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Um, he said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Not many of us like to boast about our weaknesses, do we? You know, usually we want to keep our weaknesses sort of sort of hidden because we're embarrassed, we're ashamed by them. I know I am. And we want to talk about our strengths and all of our victories. But that's not where God's strength is found. It's really in our weaknesses. And when we identify our weaknesses, we're honest with ourselves, honest with God, honest with others, and, and we submit those weaknesses and their, those faults and those failures to God, that's when his strength is seen. And we see him, again, redeeming our brokenness and bringing good out of it. Think about your greatest strengths. Think about some of the things that you've ex experienced in life. Like if you've taken some of those greatest hurts and some of those greatest failures and you've submitted those to God, may maybe you've um, endured a broken relationship and, and you really messed up pretty badly in that. And then you've submitted it to God and then he begins to work in that. And that, that great weakness of yours becomes your greatest strength because God uses you and uses that failure or that weakness to bring hope and healing to somebody else's life. See, you can speak into somebody's life when you've been there, right? You can help them to experience the healing and the wholeness that they so desperately need when you've taken your weakness, your faults, and your failures, you've submitted to God, and he redeems it, and he gives his strength to it. 
That's the beauty of what we see happening here. God's a God of redemption. And then thirdly, um, I think just to reiterate, when we trust and obey God and put him first, we can trust that he'll provide for us. And oftentimes, in abundance, in abundance. This has been true in, in my life so many times. So there have been um, times when, when I've just trusted God. I wasn't sure how we were going to make it financially, and I just trusted him and continued to give back to him the, the first of what he had entrusted to me, as we talked about last week, you know, giving back to him our tithes and our offerings. And um, things worked out great. Like, miraculously, he provided in ways that I never could have imagined. But there have been other times when I didn't do that. And, and financially, we were in a bad place. And I'm thinking, we're not going to be able to make it through the month. And so I held back that money that I was supposed to give back to God. And, and in essence, I, I robbed him of it. But you know what I, I really, really robbed was the opportunity. I robbed myself the opportunity to see how God was going to provide. I don't know how he was going to provide, but I can tell you he would have provided. I wouldn't have been out on the streets. I wouldn't have been naked and hungry and all of that, right? God would have provided. I just missed it because I didn't trust him. And I decided I'm just going to do this on my own and I'm going to rob from him. And ultimately, I robbed myself of a blessing. And I've seen it in other ways too, not just financially, but, um, you know, I've got some young kids, but I've got some older kids kids, and you know, part of being a parent, this could be a parenting um, lesson right here for you, is, is to equip them so that they can then begin to make their own decisions, right? And you need to instruct them that they can trust in God, and they can talk to God, and more importantly, they can hear from God. But sometimes when they become these young adults, and you can see this big decision that's on the horizon for them that they have to make, and you know what they should do, and you've got this inkling they're not going to do that. What do we do sometimes, parents? We make the decision for them, you know, because we don't want them to mess up. We don't want them to miss out on God's best. Instead of just trusting that, you know what, God has this. He has them, and if they seek him, they'll find him, right? Like, it's not just a promise for us. It's also for our children, and sometimes that's really hard. To trust God, like, it's one thing to trust them with our finances, but do we really trust them with our children? There have been times when I've intervened because I didn't want them to mess it up. And I wonder, did I rob them of a blessing? Did I, I rob them of something else where, you know, they were meant to see God at work and, and now they didn't? Because I had to intervene because I didn't really trust God is the bottom line. See, we've got to put him first in everything and trust him and trust that he'll provide. And oftentimes, he doesn't just provide what we need. He even goes above and beyond, and, and he provides in abundant ways, just like he did for the Israelites here. For those who trusted him and were faithful in that battle in Jericho, they got more than they ever expected. So... Um, Three things that I think we can learn and apply from this, this battle that took place. Now, I think we could wrap up right here, and we would have some good nuggets to take with us. But do you, have you ever gone to the movies, and, you know, the movie's over, and the, the credits start to roll, but they didn't bring all the lights up? 
what's that's a sign of for you? That there's bonus footage, right? Have you ever noticed that? So, so everybody else is getting up and going, and you're like, hmm, I, I wonder if I stick around for the rest of the story, like let all the credits go, will there be some bonus footage here for me? And oftentimes there is. And that's what I've got for you this morning. There's some bonus footage here in chapter 8 that I want to share with you before we go. So um, put on your listening ears again. Look at verse 30. It said, Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. As Moses, so remember Moses, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. So Moses is dead and gone for a while now. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses. So that's the book of Deuteronomy. It's referring to the book of Deuteronomy. Um, An altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool has been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. So he wrote out all of Deuteronomy on these stones. All the Israelites with their elders, officials, and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, so that represents the presence of God, facing the Levitical priests who carried it, (coughs) excuse me, both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. So everybody's there. Half of the uh, people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. As Moses, again, listen to this, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. So this is Deuteronomy again. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. Now, as you listen to me read that, you may be thinking, I don't see the bonus footage. Like, that doesn't sound all that exciting to me. Why did I wait around? You know, we could be out early. What was the point of that? Well, here's what I want to help you see the point of this. Because this is what I think is so exciting. When you start to see everything tying together in the Bible... You know, there are so many predictions of things that happen in the future. And when you start to see these predictions and these promises realized, to me, it is, it, it's exciting. It encourages me. So let's go back to Genesis. Let's go back. As I calculate, it's plus or minus right in the realm of 600 years. Let's go back some 600 years. Remember God called this man by the name of Abram, who we typically call Abraham. This was before he had a name change. And so God called this man Abram, and he said, guess what? I've got a promise and a blessing for you. He said, I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And this was a guy that didn't have any children of his own, and he was already 90 years old. I mean, his wife was all dried up. She wasn't having kids. You know, it was like a, it was an impossible situation. I mean, that's what it says in the Bible, at least what I read. Something like that. But anyhow, you get the point. Like it was this impossible kind of thing, and God made this promise. And he said, not only am I going to give you all these children, but I got this incredible land for you. Come on, let's go. I want you to live, leave where you live right now, where you're comfortable, and follow me. And what did Abram do? He followed him, and God took him to this promised land. Do you know where he took him? He took him first here to this land called Shechem. 
Shechem. It's between a couple of mountains. I got a picture. This is where he took them, between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Where, where are the Israelites right now? They're right there, between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And Abram, listen to what he did. This is Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Anybody remember Bethel and Ai? Isn't that where the battle just went down? Isn't this where Abram was and now Joshua had been? There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Again, it's been 600 years since Abram had been there, and now all these promises of God were being fulfilled. I think that's exciting. If you keep reading through Deuteronomy, again, this book of the law, if you're in Deuteronomy chapter 27, you see all this stuff described about the altar and the stones and how there's supposed to be the the book of the law written on these stones. And then um, it talks about Mount Ebal and, and Mount Gerizim in there. And this is Moses, again, writing about this. If you look at verses 12 and 13, listen to this again. It says, when you have crossed the Jordan, notice This is a prediction of the future, hundreds of years um, prior. Uh, Well, maybe not as, this isn't 600 years. This isn't all the way back to Abram, but this is before they cross into the Jordan. um, Across the Jordan, it says, When you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these tribes shall stand on on Mount Ebal to pronounce curses, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. Again, let me show you that picture. That's what we've got taking place up there. And so he split the people of Israel into two different groups. And from Mount Gerizim, they pronounced blessings. It's known as the Mount of Blessing. They pronounced the blessings of God. This is what happens when we follow God obediently. And from the other mountain, they pronounce the curses. This is what happens when we live a life of disobedience. These are the curses. And so all of this is happening right there, right there, just as had been predicted in the past. Some, um, in some cases, over 600 years prior. Isn't that amazing? Like God has this master plan. He's always had it, and I love when we start to see it coming together and these promises being realized. We see this with Joshua, but we also see it with us, that we're part of this master plan as well. And sometimes it can be frustrating. Um, we can grow impatient. We, we think, you know, God, where are you? Like, what are you doing? Have you, have you forgotten about your, your promises when we... Look around at the world that we live in now, and we see all kinds of evil, and and you're thinking, Jesus, you said you're going to come back, and you're going to deal with all this evil, and you're going to eradicate it once and for all. I mean, that was like 2,000 years ago. What are you waiting for? Why are you so slow in coming? And and then I think of, of what 
Peter wrote, this is 2 Peter 3, 9. He said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And some, so sometimes when we think God's just being slow, he's really being merciful. What we think is slowness may actually be his mercy. And, and I, I wonder, is he being merciful to some of us here? Is, is he waiting for us to come to repentance so that we can enjoy this relationship with him now and forever? Or, or is there someone that we're close to, maybe it's a friend or a family member, or a coworker, or a neighbor who's yet to come to repentance and enjoy this intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And maybe that's why Jesus hasn't come back. It's, it's not because he's slow. It's because he's merciful. You get impatient with God? It's understandable. You know, maybe, maybe you prayed and you asked him for something and, and you really had that sense he said yes but it's been a day. Like, when is, it's been a week. It's been a month. It's been a year. What is he waiting on? You know, maybe it's not his slowness. Maybe it's just mercy. Maybe we're not ready. Maybe we're not ready. Have you grown impatient with God? Have you failed to consult him on things and just decided, I'm, I'm just going to do my own thing? It seems right in my eyes. Have you ever done that? Have you failed to consult God and it turned out, oh, so wrong? Or maybe you failed to really witness a blessing that he had planned for you because you failed to consult him. You grew impatient with him. And have you been willing to confess your, your faults, your failures, and your weaknesses to God and even to others, and then just surrender them to him so that he can redeem them and actually turn your greatest weakness into your greatest strength? That's what he wants to do. He's a God of redemption. I just want to encourage each of us to hang in there. Don't grow weary. Don't grow impatient. Don't think that God has left you or that he's just slow. No, hang in there to the end. Persevere into the end, because I know he's got a promise for us all. If we will persevere to the end, then he has some bonus footage for us that is beyond anything we could ever imagine. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for being able to go back hundreds, if not thousands of years into your word and, and to... Um, See how what you were doing then is every bit as applicable in our lives to what you're doing now. Lord, help us to be men and women that, that truly do trust you, that consult you, that put you first in all things. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for the gift that we have of faith through Jesus Christ. Thank you for your patience that when we're like the Israelites and we just rush out into battle without consulting you and we fail miserably, you're still there to pick up the pieces and even redeem what was lost and broken. Thank you for this opportunity to just be um, with each other and with you this morning. 
Thank you for the reminder of your goodness. We ask it all in the Father's name, the Son's name, and the Holy Spirit's name. Amen.